Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Okay, good morning. Did anyone melt in the rain? No one's made of sugar, right? So this morning we're going to take a little bit of a break from our sermon series on Jesus in the Bible. This is something we started doing middle of last year. Um, we spent about three months just doing a summary of the Old Testament, uh, Jesus foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Then we spent another three months, uh, Jesus manifested in the Gospels. Starting next week, we'll be doing Jesus Explained in the Epistles, and that will take about 10 weeks. We're just doing, these are summaries to kind of show you the overarching big picture narrative of the Bible. And then uh, we'll spend about a month in the summer on Jesus Revealed in the Book of Revelation. But in between every one of those transitions, we take a week off to just kind of like give a little state of the church update. Uh, Not just an update, we're actually going to look at a couple passages this morning. So in 2021, our church has adopted this emphasis on strength and unity. We felt like this is what the Lord had for us. Our elders prayed and talked about this for months at the end of 2020. Before we settled on this for 2021, we think this is something we discern, not something we decided. And Uh, So at least four times this year, we'll be taking Sunday mornings to dedicate to the idea of strength and unity. Before we jump into those, uh, these two passages we're going to look at today, I want to give you some information about two upcoming adjustments that you're going to notice here at Truvine, or uh, actually not just notice, but we're going to ask you to participate in. Uh, And they have to do with us uh, living in a post- COVID, post-coronavirus world, and trying to figure out how to do that exactly. So uh, you may have noticed that the last few weeks, maybe you haven't, but we have the last few weeks been making small changes and adjustments. So three weeks ago, our 11 a.m. service opened up their first children's church class in a year. So small little step toward uh, returning, right? And then two weeks ago, you may have noticed that we added some more chairs to the sanctuary, and, and we're still only at like 65% of the chairs we used to have, but we'll be adding more chairs someday, but we added a few more about two weeks ago. Last week, you may have noticed we took down our shield face dividers. I might put that back up for my own benefit because I feel like you might throw batteries at me or something during a sermon, but we took those down. Uh, So we are making tiny little adjustments to get back to functioning a little more normally. Today, I'm going to ask you to consider some adjustments. Now, if you're in the room right now, you've kind of already done this, but uh, for those that are watching us online, here's something that I want you to think about. As the city of Philadelphia begins to open up a little more broadly, I think now is the time for us, you, we, to start having conversations about returning back to in-person worship. Now, we've been having in-person worship uh, you know, since the early part of last summer, but we've always had to do some 
uh, limitations. We had to take registration or cap it at this number or, you know, stuff like that. And we haven't capped it anytime recently, but we've, we've been trying to make sure it doesn't get too full in here. And, and we're still going to do that, but it is time. It's, it's April, heading into May and June. I think it's time that we start having conversations about what does it mean to return fully to in-person worship. So if you've been watching from home and worshiping from home, I'm not saying or begging you, please come back next week. But what I am saying is it's probably time for you to start thinking about what do you need to see in order for you to be comfortable? And what will your return be like? Will it be once a month until you're vaccinated? Do you need to be vaccinated? Will you only return if there's masks? Or, you know, like be thinking about those things. I don't have any suggestions. I don't have any recommendations other than don't, don't just be passive about it. Take some time to think about what will make you ready to come back in person, and when will you be ready to do that, and how will you make that? We, our 9 o'clock service is generally a little lighter attended than our 11 o'clock service. Maybe that's something that you need to consider. Uh, maybe you'll wear a mask forever. Uh, I don't have any problem with you wearing a mask forever. Um, Ha, 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 ha. Okay. No, no jokes there? Okay. All right. Uh, you know, that type of thing. Maybe, maybe you're only comfortable coming back once a month. Maybe you're, you, I'll be back as soon as I get vaccinated. That's fine too. But I just, I'm asking you to start thinking about the steps that you'll need to take in order to return to in-person worship. Because listen, the Bible makes it clear we're supposed to gather. And we understand that for the last year, there have been some really strange, extenuating circumstances, really unique. Most of us have never experienced anything like this. Uh, Chico remembers during the Spanish flu, same thing happened, uh, that he couldn't watch. No one gets that joke because Chico's not here. Uh, Chico's old. So, um, you know, uh, we get the extenuating circumstances, but at some point, we have to gather in person. It's a biblical mandate. It's a requirement. It's a teaching of scripture that we should gather in person. And as things open up in the city of Philadelphia, I don't think the church should be lagging behind in that area. Uh, you know, I, I am aware that in Philly, infection rates are slightly increasing every week and they have increased for the last five or six weeks. So I'm aware of that. I get that. But I also know that last week, for every one person that got COVID, 25 people were fully vaccinated. So if, if COVID is moving at five miles an hour, the vaccine's moving at 125 miles an hour. So I get that the cases are slightly going up, but the vaccine is it's being rolled out quickly. It's being rolled out rapidly. So I'm saying begin to think about what it would mean for you to return to in-person services. Secondly, to those of you that... Uh, exclusively watch us online, so I'm looking at the cameras now, I want you to know you're going to probably notice some adjustments as well because starting next Sunday, we will be re reorienting our services to what's happening in the room. This is a weird thing, and maybe it only affects you know me psychologically, but last year at this time, when it was literally just five people with a camera right there, it was so weird. It was so weird. You know, it was being like... Uh, you know, a person with a cat, you know, it was like no one was really around, but you felt like you had company. So uh, there's a camera there. And, and so it didn't matter what happened in the room. We had paint buckets and no carpet because we were doing renovations. We had a ladder for two Sundays, you know, in this, it didn't matter 
because everything was this one camera, you know? But then we started to have a couple people back in. I remember the first Sunday, it was just like 12 people. It was all our governing board and staff. And, and still, it was like, okay, be mindful of the 12 people who are in the room, but still, most people are watching through the camera. So pay attention to the camera. And then we added a few more people and a few more people, but it still always, it was like, don't plan a service that's gonna, you know, not maximize the viewing audience. And I think now is the time that we switch to where we go back to how we used to do stuff in the room. So here's probably, if you're watching us from home, here are probably some changes you're going to recognize. We used to pray all the time in our services, and we're going to go back to that. And if you're watching from home, you're probably not going to hear those prayers because we don't have 150 microphones to hand out. And so you're probably not going to hear those prayers, so just, just chill and wait. Uh, maybe you'll hear some of them. We do have a microphone that picks up the room. You might hear some of it, but you can pray. When you're, pray from home. Uh, just, you know, you can still participate with us. You may have to wait for a little bit, but we're going to go back to praying in person. Another thing we're going to do is we used to, at least twice a month, we would have prayer teams up front where people could respond to the, to the message or to the worship and come up and be prayed for. We kind of did away with that because you're supposed to keep distance and not touch, and we're going to make sure we still try to follow the, the right rules, but we're going to return to that where you can actually come up and receive prayer ministry. Uh, you also maybe notice if you're watching from home that there are going to be Sundays where we go into worship at the end of the service. And we just kind of fade you out. We're not going to have a hard dismissal where we look at the camera or look at the crowd and say, you're dismissed. Because we may still be doing something in the room. God may still be doing something. The Holy Spirit may be doing something. And we, we don't want to shut that down um, so that we can you know, have a hard commercial break uh, and, and go into the post game. We're going to let what's happening in the room happen in the room, and, and we'll just fade you out, and, and you can go about your, your business. So uh, I hope that makes sense. We're doing our best to honor everybody involved, whether you are in person, watching at home, or doing a little bit of both. We are so thrilled that we're able to do this, but we're trying to figure this out. Like We didn't plan for this. It happened to us, and we're planning a year later how we should make these adjustments and transitions. So I'm sorry to bore you with all those details. Uh, that's more of an announcement than a sermon, but this is the time to make that because starting next Sunday, we're going to implement some of those changes. Okay. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into First Thessalonians and Jude 20. Do you guys want more announcements? I got more. Are you good? Get into the Bible? Okay, we'll get into the Bible. Jesus, thank you for the, the testimony of Scripture, the faithfulness of the authors of scripture to submit themselves to your leading, to write these principles down. Thank you, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit illuminates scripture for us so that we can know and apply these principles. With, aside from your spirit, Lord, we don't know what to do, but you uh, gave us your spirit who inspired your word and it illuminates it for us now. And Help us, Jesus, to know what to do with these passages, and I pray that in your name. Amen. Okay. So, before the coronavirus hit, we were actually, for the first time in the history of the United States, we were at a point where less than 50% of Americans attended church. 
Now, I don't, know that, I don't know if that's shocking to you or not. It's not really shocking to me personally, but it's the first time in the history of the United States that less than half of the country attended church because in the old days, everybody attended church. The community was centered around the church, and so now more people don't attend church than do attend church. Uh, that's why I can get from my house to Fishtown and back in under 30 minutes with a coffee because no one's out on the roads on Sunday mornings. No one's going to church. There's no traffic on Sunday mornings because people are not up and out and doing the, uh, going to church. They're at home sleeping in. And uh, so this is the first time in the history of the United States that there are more people who don't attend church that, than do attend church. Now to me, that statistic doesn't even tell the whole story because even when the majority of Americans attended church, the majority of Americans were still not being transformed into the image of Jesus. The majority of Americans, I don't know that we've ever had a point where the majority of Americans were becoming more like Christ. Does that make sense? So I'm not sure, but I I think it's kind of dangerous when you have a ton of people who attend church but aren't becoming more like Jesus. That to me is kind of terrifying. Because any religious behavior that you participate in that doesn't make you more like Jesus ends up making you more like a Pharisee. So, you know, I'm not thrilled. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I want people to go to church. I need people to go to church. You know, like, I, I'm not thrilled by those statistics, but I do see under the surface a glimmer of hope that maybe uh, the church, the, those that remain, the remnant, as the Bible would call it, maybe will be more authentic, more genuine, and will actually take, be the ones who take their faith seriously and will be the ones that are willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus, if that makes sense. So that's, for, for, for those of us that consider ourselves American Christians, and I grew up here, obviously, you know, I think that's obvious, maybe it's not, but I did, and I've been a Christian for 25 years. Most of my life has been American Christian, you know. Um, We've never really faced persecution. And when I read stories of persecution in the Bible, (laughs) I just, it's hard to relate. They're getting locked up, thrown in prison. Their lives are on the line. They're losing uh, jobs. It says in Hebrews that their property was taken from them. The, the, the government rolled in and took their property. And, uh, and it says that they, they suffered that with great joy when that happened, you know? Uh, and so I think about that and it's almost impossible for me to imagine what that would look like here because American Christians have, you know, the most persecution we suffer is someone makes fun of us. Or there's a TV show that doesn't paint Christians in a positive light. You know what I mean? Like that's, you know, that's, that's the most, I think what many of us think is persecution is actually just no longer being in power. Does, does that make sense? We, we think that's persecution, but really it's just we're no longer in control and we have to experience what everyone else was experiencing the whole time and we think that's persecution, but really that's just life. That's just life. And so, uh, I hesitate to jump into 1 Thessalonians this morning because 1 Thessalonians is written to a congregation that's actually experiencing real legitimate persecution. Like they're getting beat. They're getting imprisoned. Their families are getting separated. Why? Just because of their faith in Jesus. 
So I want you to know as we go into looking at 1 Thessalonians and talking about persecution that I understand that on the spectrum of persecution, most of us are on the very, very low side of things where maybe we might get teased, maybe someone might say something bad, but I doubt that many of us are losing jobs. I doubt that many of us are losing family. I doubt that many of us are getting hurt or beat or robbed or getting our property uh, taken because of our faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, I get where we are. I understand it. I don't, I'm not, this is not sound the alarm, you know, religious liberty, blah, blah, blah. This is not that. This is, um, I get where we are, but here's what the Bible says to this congregation in in Thessalonica that's experiencing persecution. Uh, This congregation in Thessalonica, they're going through really hard stuff. They suffer persecution, and Paul wants to write to them and help them be sustained in the midst of persecution. So let me read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 11 through 22. It's going to be up on the screen as well. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now this may sound like just a list of instructions and commands, because it is. That's exactly what this is. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, and at the, just the, the eight verses or the ten verses preceding this, Paul's reminding them, hey, you're, you're, you're in persecution. Persecuted Christians have always looked forward to the return of Jesus as their hope. He says, remember Jesus said he would come like a thief in the night. You might be familiar with that. He said he would return like a thief in the night. This is Matthew 24, I believe. So Paul says, yeah, Jesus will return like a thief in the night. But you Thessalonians, you're not nighttime people. You're not darkness people. You're daytime people. You live in the light. So be awake. All of, the, all of this foolishness, all of this sin, all of the senselessness, that's, that's darkness stuff. But you're daytime people. So he says, so be awake. In the midst of this season that you're in, be awake. And so what Paul, is the instructions that he gives, it starts in verse 11. That word, therefore, you always, when you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's that therefore? It's therefore because he's saying, now be awake. Okay, so what's it look like to be awake, Paul? These instructions are what it looks like for, to be awake. This is what it looks like to be awake in the midst of persecution. It's a long list. I'm going to go through it really quickly and just elaborate on a, a couple parts here. He says, encourage one another. So don't tear people down. Cheer them up. That's literally what the word means, cheer them up. I wish it meant something more spiritual sounding. It literally means cheer them up. 
Can I just go with the go at this backwards? Can we we don't need any more cynics. We don't need any more Debbie Downers. We need people that will encourage one another. You know, when we pray for something, we're, we need this miracle, and we're going to pray for it. You know what we don't need? People that are like, probably not going to happen. That's not encouraging one another, right? So if, if you have the spirit of Debbie Downer, you know, just sip your coffee quietly in the corner, okay? Encur- <laughs> encourage one another. Verse 11, build one another up. That means to strengthen, to solidify. It's a a form of encouragement, but it goes beyond simply cheering people up. It's a way of kind of buttressing them, helping them live a more solid life. One of the ways you can build up another person is saying, hey, I see this spiritual gift in you. I appreciate this ministry that you do. Or sometimes building another person up might say, hey, I really think you would grow if you dealt with this issue in your life that's getting on my nerves. Don't say it that way, but you'll get the picture. Like, it, encouraging, uh, building a person up can sometimes include correcting them, but you're correcting them in love. It says in verse 13, live in peace with one another. This is three statements that are one another statements. It's encourage one another, build up one another, live at peace with one another. How do you make sure that you are living at peace with other Christians? We think of shalom. That's the word I think of when, when I think of peace. Shalom is the presence of God's blessing. It's the presence of God's favor. You want to make sure that you're living at peace with one another as followers of Jesus. Now, it also says in verse 12 to uh, appreciate diligent leadership. Now, I know that this is weird because it says literally, appreciate, appreciate those who labor among you and I labor among you. So I, I get that this can be weird and self-serving, but I'm going to try to avoid that. Appreciate those that labor diligently among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay, so what we ought to do is make sure that what we're prioritizing among leaders, whether it's pastors, elders, deacons, treasurers, discipleship group leaders, worship leaders. You know what we ought to make the most important thing? That they are diligent. Not that they are cool. Not that their jeans are so tight. You know, not that, not that they're attractive. I mean, you guys are just lucky that you happened into that with me. But, you know, like, that, that's not what's important. Right? What is important is diligence. Do they take their calling seriously? Do they cut corners or do they go all the way? Do they, are they prayerful? Are they hardworking? Are they diligent? We want to make sure that we are prioritizing diligence in leadership. Does that make sense? We're not, we're not shortcutting anything. We're not doing things uh, half-heartedly. We're doing everything uh, with diligence. Paul goes on. He addresses, in verse 14, he kind of changes who he's addressing here. I like this. Uh, this is really why I wanted to preach on this passage. He says, we urge you, brethren, and he gives four different actions. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So sometimes when you're speaking into a person's life, it's hard to know, what do I say here? Do they need me to 
encourage them or do they need me to correct them or do they need me to just listen? It's, it's hard to know sometimes, like, what, what am I supposed to do? This is, for me, particularly difficult when at a funeral or a tragedy has happened and it's like, I don't know what to say. Well, this helps a little bit. It says, to the unruly, admonish them, which is to correct them, to rebuke, to confront. But you do that to the unruly person, not the person who's in grief. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like we, we do have to confront people, but this tells us who to confront. The unruly people, the rebellious person, the, the stubborn person, the arrogant person who causes trouble, that's who we admonish. And then it says, encourage the faint-hearted. Don't encourage the unruly person. Encourage the faint-hearted person. Who's the faint-hearted person? That's the person that's like, their faith is just, it's, it's like on thin ice. They're, they're struggling, they're doubting, they're having a hard time. Do you put your finger in their face and admonish them? Well, Paul says you're supposed to encourage that person. That's the person you're supposed to come up alongside and strengthen them. It says, help the weak, not shame the weak, not embarrass the weak, not tell the weak, you're weak, <laughs> but help them. Help the weak, assist them, aid them, support them. And then he says, just a blanket statement, and just be patient with everyone. Whether they're unruly or faint-hearted or weak or stubborn or slow or mean or an introvert just or an extrovert especially, just be patient with everybody. You know, just, if you can just be patient with everybody, that's one of the ways you can stem, demonstrate the love of Jesus. Boy, I'm going really fast, but there's so many things to cover here. Uh, now, he actually, in verses 16, 17, and 18, I think he starts to paint a picture of living a sustainable spirituality. Our vision here at True Vine is to make disciples that sustain revival. And he says three statements in a row that I think are all about sustainability because he says, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing, in everything, give thanks. Those are always statements. When are you supposed to give thanks? In everything. When are you supposed to pray? Always. When are you supposed to rejoice? Always. I mean, these are things that are supposed to be consistent in our lives. Rejoicing always requires that you're going to have to find what's God doing in every situation. Even the uncomfortable stuff, the hard stuff that you don't like, you wouldn't sign up for, well, God's got to be doing something in this. At the very least, he's making me more like Jesus through it. So you rejoice in those things. Praying without ceasing means you're having this running conversation with God throughout the day, which means your, your prayer life is going to have to break out of the this, because you can't do that all day. I, I, it's still funny to me how many times... Uh, I'll be praying with someone in the car and they'll say, I'm going to pray with my eyes open so we don't get in a wreck. And I'm like, yeah, you can, you can pray with your eyes open all the time. You, know, you don't have to explain to me why you're not doing this. Your prayer life can't be put your hands together and close your eyes all the time because we're supposed to pray without ceasing. So that's a running dialogue with the Lord where you are both speaking to and listening to the Lord throughout the day. In everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He continues... Verse 19, don't quench the spirit. 
This is, I want to remind you, he's speaking to people that are being persecuted. The church in Thessalonica, they're, they're getting beat up. They're getting take, stuff taken from them. Families are being separated. He says to them, don't quench the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit is a gift given by Jesus to get us through the difficult things that we experience. When you're going through persecution, when you're going through any difficulty, you're going to need the Holy Spirit in your life. He corrects you when you're wrong. He comforts you when you're broken. He empowers you when you need it. Like he, He's the living member of the Trinity that Jesus sent to be with us. The Father is in heaven. Jesus has ascended to heaven. Who did Jesus send to be with us now? The Holy Spirit. Who did you receive when you put your faith in Jesus? The Holy Spirit. So don't quench him. Don't shut down your helper. Don't ignore your counselor. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. To quench the Holy Spirit means when you, when you, when you discern that the Holy Spirit is saying something to you and say, uh, I'm not going to do that. I don't think so. You shut it down. You quench it. The Holy Spirit is so often in the Bible like a fire. He's... Uh, pictured as a fire. So when you quench it, it's kind of just like dousing him. If you do that too many times, he just won't talk to you. There's probably a better way to say that, a more pastoral way to say that, but it's actually, okay, let me back up. It's not that he won't talk to you. It's that you can only harden your heart so many times till it turns into stone. And then even when he screams in your face, you still don't hear him. So it's not that the deficit is on his end. It's that if you harden your heart by saying no, harden your heart by saying no, harden your heart by saying no, eventually you're just, it's, it's all closed up. And you know what breaks a heart of stone? A sledgehammer. Something happens in your life to shake you out of that. And even that is God's mercy. You don't want him to use the sledgehammer, but like he's like, I love you too much to not use the sledgehammer. This is like, I've had to do this a couple times with my kids, ripping the Band-Aid off. And the fear of it is horrible, but you have to do it, right? You have to do some of that stuff. He also says, do not despise prophetic utterances. In the church, in the New Testament, there were people who were called prophets, actually in the Old Testament as well. There were people who were called prophets, and they heard from the Lord and reported what, they said, uh, what God said. And I love the book of Acts for so many reasons, but one of them is the prophets in the church played such a prominent role. And uh, in Acts 17, Paul is in Thessalonica, and there are prophets that kind of like move around... Um, from Antioch and Thessalonica and Jerusalem and these cities. So there would have been prophetically gifted people in the church in Thessalonica. And, and Paul says, hey, don't despise prophetic utterances. When a person speaks out prophetically, meaning they have a message from the Lord, don't hate that. Don't dread it. Don't be like, oh, this again. This person. I'm trying to get done by noon. And this person's talking. Don't despise that. You know why? Because when you're going through something, don't you need God to speak? Don't you need to hear from the Lord? Especially when you're going through persecution. I mean, isn't that when you need God to speak through someone? And so you can't be shutting that down when you're in your deepest time of need. 
So don't despise prophetic utterances. Paul instructs them in, uh, us in 1 Corinthians to cultivate the prophetic in the church. And that might come through singing, it might come through preaching, it might come through someone praying or speaking out in a congregation, but you don't want to have this negative feeling toward the prophetic. Don't despise it. Verse 21, examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. So we're going to think critically about things. We're going to examine things. No one is treated better or worse than anyone else. We examine everything. We test everything. Everyone get, has to, everything has to pass through this test where we evaluate and assess. And then it says abstain from every form of evil. This is, this is the last thing Paul says after all of these other commands. I think I counted roughly 16 commands, depending on how you chop up the passages here. He tops it off with and abstain from every sort of evil. I think most of us define Christianity um, just don't do bad things. That's the last thing on the list. I mean, there's so much other, there's so many other things in following Jesus, but he does include abstain from every form of evil. I think it seems to me, and maybe I'm just getting getting older, evil's a little more prevalent now, or maybe it's easier to find. It does seem like you could find evil pretty quick pretty easy. It's actually hard to avoid it. Uh, it's so, it so permeates our society. It's, it's in every TV show. It's in almost every song. It's, it's, it's in the motives of politicians. It's in the motives of media. It's in the motives of uh, businesses. It's, I mean, it's in so many people's motives. Evil, right? The church is to abstain from evil. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that should make us distinct is that our attitude toward evil is we don't participate. Businesses don't have to say we don't participate in evil. Governments don't have to say we don't participate in evil. But the church should say we don't participate in evil. We abstain from evil. Now, a couple things about persecution, and then we're going to look really quickly at a passage in Jude. Persecution is not the general difficulties that come with life. Okay? Um... You know, if you oversleep and sleep through your alarm and you're late to work, that's not persecution. That's just, you know, get your act together. If you show up late to work because you overslept and your boss writes you up or whatever they have to do, that's not persecution. That's the consequences of your actions, right? Having a hard time being an adult or living life is not persecution. Persecution is when you're mistreated because of your faith in Jesus. That's persecution, okay? Getting a ticket because you sped through a stop sign, that's not persecution. Having to pay taxes isn't persecution. But when you're mistreated for your faith in Jesus, that's persecution. So let's say, just hypothetically, let's say you're in a situation where you are mistreated for your faith in Jesus. What are you supposed to do about that? Probably like put a sign on a picket and have a protest, right? Write your congressman. Post about it on social media. Well, this is what Jesus said. Blessed are those who've been persecuted. And bless those who persecute you, it says in Romans 12, 14. Bless those that persecute you. 2 Timothy 3 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Anyone that wants to follow Jesus closely should expect some level of persecution. So if you think you signed up because following Jesus will get you a better job, a better marriage, a bigger house, what Jesus told Paul to tell us was, hey, if you sign up to follow me, expect persecution. Expect difficulty. And when you're persecuted, you are blessed because you've been counted worthy of persecution. This is a hard, hard concept for the American church to understand. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted. The apostles in the book of Acts, when they were persecuted in Acts chapter 4, they took it as an honor because they considered it an honor that they were worthy of persecution. But the church in America has not faced much much persecution, and I wonder, are we not worthy have we not lived closely enough to Jesus that, we, that God even considers us worthy of the honor of persecution? So when, you, when you're persecuted, you're supposed to count it as an honor. Now, I think it's okay. I mean, when they tried to kill Jesus and he hid. They tried to kill Paul and he ran to another town. I mean, it's okay sometimes, like, it's okay if you're getting it for your faith to, to go another direction if you need to. If the Lord permits that, you, you don't have to stand there and take it all the time. You're, Jesus went the other direction, Paul went the other direction. You can leave a situation where you're being persecuted for your faith if the Lord releases you. But you can't compromise your faith because you're being persecuted. You can't water it down, dial it back. That's what you're not supposed to do. If you have to leave a situation, leave a job, leave a setting because they're giving you a hard time over your faith, you can do that. You don't have to sit there and and get verbally or uh, beat up or mistreated because of that. What you can't do is cool your jets, calm it down, compromise. So if you have to find a different situation or different setting so that you can follow Jesus closely, do that. Now, this passage in 1 Thessalonians is directed toward a church that is persecuted. There's a shorter, similar passage in Jude. The church that Jude is writing to, I'm going to probably say Paul a thousand times, but it's Jude. The church that Jude is writing to is not experiencing persecution so much as deception. There's false teachers that they're dealing with. Jude is one chapter. If you want to find Jude, it'll be up on the screen. Jude, who's Jude? That's Jesus' brother. Did you know Jesus had brothers, half-brothers? Same mom, you know, different dad. Jesus had half-brothers. One of them was Jude. Jude was not one of the 12 disciples. (laughs) Jude, most likely Jude did not believe in Jesus when Jesus said, come follow me. He was like, yeah, right. You're just, you got that firstborn thing where you think everyone's supposed to listen to you. Jude did not follow Jesus until Jesus died and was erected, uh, resurrected. And Jude saw that and was like, okay, I believe now. Mom told me that you died, but you're alive. I believe now. And so Jude is one of the brothers of Jesus who did not put his faith in Jesus until after the resurrection. And Jude becomes a leader in the church. Jude writes this one little tiny epistle. It's only uh, 25 verses. I'm just going to read a few verses. This is Jude chapter 20, uh, Jude verses 20 through 23. This sounds a lot like what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. But you, beloved, 
Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, Jude is writing this to a church, again, that's not experiencing persecution so much as there's false teachers and there's deception uh, around them, and he wants them to stay focused on the teaching of the apostles, the true teaching of Scripture. Jesus warned that in the last days there would be false teachers. Paul said the same thing. Peter said the same thing. John said the same thing. So if Peter... Jesus, Paul, Peter, and John all said that there would be false teachers. You guys think there might be false teachers? You think they're trying to make a point? So should we be discerning today about who we listen to and what we believe? I don't know if you guys know this. Turns out anybody can have a YouTube channel. Turns out anybody can put stuff on the internet. Doesn't have to be accurate. Doesn't have to be vetted. Doesn't have to be peer-reviewed, doesn't have to be anything. You can just put some nonsense up online. So we need to know how to do this. Uh, We need to know how to test good teaching. Um, I think of this often. We took our kids down to the Navy uh, yard last week, and we're walking along the Delaware River, and, you know, they got all the, there's like a big fence there, and like, it's almost impossible for someone to fall in. But as a parent, sometimes you let, your your mind goes there, like if one of them fell in. Uh, Am I the only one that does that? Okay, all right, well, if one of my kids fell in, I, in my whole, I've, I've rehearsed the whole thing in my head. Don't worry about your phone, don't worry about your wallet, just jump in and get the kid. So, I don't know. Am I the, I'm not the only one that does that, right? Just jump in and get the kid. It might, maybe I should stop hanging the kids over the railing, I don't know. So, every time we go around water, I have three different levels of concern. Aiden can swim, so as long as it's not like a rough sea, I'm pretty confident Aiden will be fine. Aiden took swimming lessons, he can swim. Emma has floaties. You know, like, as long as she's got her floaties on, she can keep her head above water. Josiah just has a big head. He would probably sink like a rock, upside down, like head first. That dude's head is huge and dense. So I have three levels of concern. I'm most concerned for Josiah, medium for Emma, least for Aiden. You know why? Because Aiden can swim. I don't have to watch him as much because I know he can handle himself in most situations. If we go to a pool or something like that, he can handle himself. Or a calm lake, he can handle himself. Emma can't quite handle herself yet, but someday, Josiah, he's the one that needs the most care. So I have to decide, am I never going to let these kids go near water or am I going to teach them to swim? As Christians in 2021, with all sorts of crazy doctrines and ideas going around, I can't afford to watch everybody all the time. John Eric can't afford to watch everybody all the time. So we just got to teach people how to swim. Because you're going to be out there on the choppy ocean of the internet and hear some ridiculous ideas. We can't read everything you've read, watch every video you've read, listen to every sermon you've read. So what we got to teach you to do is, instead is how to swim for yourself. 
how to spot false teaching, how to understand scripture, how to read and interpret and apply the Bible, how to, how to know when something's wrong. So Paul actually, this is what Paul's getting at. He's getting at, he's trying to teach these Christians how to swim. He can't be with them all the time, right? Paul doesn't even live near them. He might see them once or twice in their lives. So he's trying to teach them how to swim. So in the midst of false teaching, here's how, what he says to them about how to swim. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. So be getting strengthened. The faith, you know, the faith is what you believe. It's the doctrines, it's the concepts, and then the trust that you put in those things. Build that up. Be strengthening that. Don't let that get weak. Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Paul said to pray continually. Jude says to pray in the Holy Spirit. Those go hand in hand. When you're praying, be praying in agreement with the Holy Spirit. For those that pray in tongues, this is a great opportunity to do that. If you pray in a prayer language, that's not the only way to pray in the Spirit, but for those that do, go for that. I've personally, I pray in tongues, and now that I have to wear masks in church, I do it way more than I used to, because no one can tell. Keep yourselves in the love of God, it says in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Understand that God loves you. This is like what John's talking about in John chapter 15, abide in God's love. Remain in God's love. If you start to feel yourself drifting out of God's love and toward like shame and guilt, you need to stop that drift and swing yourself back into where you're understanding God's love for you and your love for God. Does that make sense? Don't let yourself drift into like a shame-based, guilt-based form of spirituality or religion because, listen, that shuts everything down. People don't like shame. People don't like guilt. You know, the number one way to get someone to stop reading the Bible is make them feel guilty about not reading the Bible because then they just have negative feelings toward the Bible. I'm careful to do with my kids, you know, on this. Like, they don't, you know, they have Bibles and some days they read them and some days they don't. So I'm guilt, I make sure, like, don't make them feel bad if they miss a week or a month or something like that because once you attach guilt to it, it's hard to get it off. Keep yourselves in love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have mercy on some. This is, you know, Paul said something similar. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Last week, uh, it was Easter Sunday, and I was talking about the resurrection and how we have to put our faith in the resurrection. It's important to have faith and faith and faith and believe and blah. Go get them. Very football coachy. And, uh, at both services, people came up to me afterwards and they were like, but sometimes I have doubts. And I said, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> no, I knew this passage was coming that says, have mercy on some who are doubting. So I said, yeah, me too. I've had some doubts. Sometimes I still have doubts and I'll probably have doubts in the future. I get it. Like I... I so how are we supposed to interact with people that have doubts? We're supposed to have mercy on them. Not make them feel bad about it. Not try to like cram it down their throats. Have mercy on people that are doubting. 
you do try to invite them into faith. You do try to call them back into faith, but we want to have mercy on them. Mercy in a way that supports their faith, not... Mercy is a hard thing because sometimes mercy is unsanctified. Like I call it unsanctified mercy, where it's like, oh, you're in the mud? Oh, isn't mud great? You're in a pit? How's that pit? That's a great pit. You like it in that pit? Here's some food. And it's like, just get me out of the pit, please. Help me out of the pit. I don't need you to come be in the pit with me. Get me out of the pit. I I would say leaving someone in the pit, that's unsanctified mercy. Help them get out of the pit. The, the The person who stands above the pit and says, what a swell pit. And the person who stands above the pit and says, hey, get out of that pit, idiot. They've done the same thing. They've left the person in the pit. Right? It's the person who gets in the pit with them but then helps them get out. That's the only one that's actually accomplished anything, right? Okay, that's my little lecture about mercy and unsanctified mercy. Save others, verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. In the midst of this uh, deception, Jude is reminding them that hell is real and that people need to be saved. This is a life or death situation. That those who die in deception, those who die without knowing Jesus, are in eternal conscious torment, separated from God. We call that concept hell. Jude wants us to save people out of that, to snatch people out of the fire. He says, on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So I think he starts with, Have mercy on the doubters, but save those that are in danger of the fire. And in the middle is, so have mercy, but also have fear. Have mercy with fear. Um, He says, hate even the garment stained by flesh. That's like, don't don't get close to sin. Don't tiptoe to sin and call it evangelism. You know, don't, I had a professor in college who led a, led a stripper to the Lord, and that always asks the question, how did you know her? <laughs> He's like, I was at the strip club, and I led her to the Lord. This was when he was a teenager, or a young man, not when he was a Bible professor. But he went to a strip club and led one of the strippers to the Lord. You know, I'm glad she came to the faith, but you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to Club Riscate to lead them to the Lord. There are other means to do that. Hate even the garment that's uh, stained by sin. So Paul is, uh, Paul is talk- talking to the church in Thessalonica. Jude is talking to the, ch- we actually don't know what church Jude is talking to, but he's dealing with the ones that uh, are dealing with deception. People are getting deceived all around them. There are four common commands between the two passages. They both talk about building up your faith and the faith of others. They both give instruction on prayer. They both tell us to love other people, and they both tell us to avoid evil. So as we look at how to strengthen our faith and how to walk in unity, I think that those common commands are really helpful to us. We want to build up our faith and the faith of other people. Make sure that your faith is getting strengthened. You know, if, if you're feeling like your faith is cooling off, getting weaker, there ought to be alarm bells going off in your head. You also uh, pray. 
we're going to have to we're going to have to recenter ourselves on prayer i think moving forward i th- i don't know if it was uh just our own natural um distractions or maybe it was covid but prayer kind of went like this this year um you know it, you know it's hard cuz like we're not allowed to we weren't allowed to gather and stuff like that and so i get it and it's who wants to pray over a zoom meeting and and i get that but as things loosen up we got to get back to prayer um whether that's attending our prayer meeting or praying in your discipleship groups or establishing a prayer life of your own but we got to get back to praying and so we'll be doing that on sunday mornings as well but please don't wait for sunday mornings to build a prayer life loving other people as we strengthen our faith and and pursue unity we got we got to love other people you know there's just no excuse not to. Are you supposed to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. <laughs> Are you supposed to love your neighbors? Yes. Well, at least you can hate your enemies. Oh, no. Jesus said love your enemies. I went, so who's, who's left? Right? As far as human beings on the earth, who's left? Right, so you just your attitude should be love toward every human being. Your love doesn't validate their sin. You know, you don't have to be afraid that oh, if I show them love, they're going to think that I'm okay with their sin. No, that's God's love for you doesn't validate your sin. So I know how we got that idea. Your love doesn't validate their sin. Your love isn't an excuse. Your love is going to actually invite them into a relationship with Jesus. Romans 2 says God's kindness leads people toward repentance. So let God show his kindness through you as you love everyone. That will call people to repentance. It's, it's, it's crazy. Kindness leads people to repentance. Love leads people to repentance. Sacrifice is what leads people to repentance. Not volume. Not aggressive behavior. That's not what leads people to repentance. Kindness leads people to repentance. It disarms people. It, uh, they put their, sh- their walls down. Finally, this is the other common command that's in both passages. Avoid evil. We've got to make sure that uh, we're living holy lives because we can get sucked into this like anyone else. We've we got to avoid evil. You know, I don't want to get <laughs> I don't want to get legalistic, but I probably don't need to worry about that. You got to be you got to be careful about what exists in here in your internal world, your heart, your head. What are your motives? What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? And those things are all shaped. It says in Proverbs to guard your heart because out of it is the overflow of life. Those things are all shaped by what you listen to, what you watch, the conversations you have, the things you participate in. You know? I mean, what, what you see on screens, what you hear out of speakers, what you participate in, what you do, all has this impact on the heart and the mind. I, I think we all know this, right? It's why we don't want our kids watching everything that's on TV, right? 
And, and uh, we, we have certain restrictions and blocks and we, we want to make sure that they're not seeing all that stuff because we know that if they see it, it's going to have a negative impact on them. Well, it will have a negative impact on you too. You might be able to process it better than a kid. You might be able to filter it better than a kid. But if you let your guard down all the time and just let the, you know, unrestricted stuff in, it's going to impact you. It's going to poison you. It's going to hurt you. And that's eventually going to come out. I, I, I feel it sometimes. I'll watch the news, and, and when I'm done, I feel I'm angry. I'm angry about what I saw. I'm angry about what I think the agenda is. I'm angry about this. I'm angry about that. I'm angry at this person and that person. So you just you got to be aware of that and avoid evil. Avoid what you, you know, participating in evil. Avoid contributing uh, to evil. Now, this morning we want to observe communion, and on your way in, you probably received communion elements. Now, Stan McCurdy, if you would come up and join me on the stage. Dan's one of our elders. Uh, I'm going to explain this, and then Dan's going to lead us in our communion declarations. But I'm going to give that to you. So if you've got a communion elements on your way in, the wafer on the top is a reminder of Jesus' body, which is broken for us. And the juice in the cup, or the, the, we'll just call it the cup, is a reminder of Jesus' blood which was shed for us. When we take communion, we're always talking about Jesus' death. We don't take communion for a tra tradition or something we made up. We're always taking communion to remind us of Jesus' death. We proclaim Jesus' death every time we do this. The bread is his body broken for us. The cup is his blood shed for us. We examine ourselves. We ask Jesus to look in here and speak to us about what's going on internally so that we can make adjustments, repent, confess, do whatever it is we need to do, believe, trust. So communion is a really good opportunity for us to reset. We do this on a monthly basis, but you can do this more frequently at home. Uh, we do this on a monthly basis just to, so we don't go too long without saying, Jesus, examine us. So I'm going to pray for the elements, and then Dan's going to lead us in the uh, communion declarations, and then pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your body and your blood. Your body was broken, your blood was shed. You died for us to cleanse us and reconcile us to God. Lord, I bless this time. It's, it's, we're doing this because it's a biblical mandate. We're doing this because you've given us this opportunity. We're doing this because it's an opportunity to let you look in and examine us. So Jesus, use this as a means of grace to strengthen us in our faith. I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.